Uh, what I'd like to talk about today, for, for obvious reasons, is uh, Tisha B'Av, which we are going to be commemorating on Thursday. You know, um, <clears throat> now Tisha B'Av has many different facets, has many different dimensions. You see, and uh, the first, the first thing to ask really is Tisha B'Av. Obviously, we know what happened is that the Beit HaMikdash, the first and the second, were destroyed on the same day, which is the ninth day of Av. So we know that, right? But when you think about that, the real question is that this happened a long time ago. In fact, it happened in um, 1,952 years ago. That's when it happened. In other words, 68 CE, that's when the, the second base Amigdash was destroyed. So what we really have to ask ourselves is, what does that mean? So why, what, what, what do we commemorate, really? You know, it happened a long time ago, you know. So the question that we have to ask is like, you know, of course it, it, it's, it's relevant to us, obviously, but why do we mourn it so much? You know, we could, we, we miss it, you know, but mourning is worse than that. When you mourn, it's because you have suffered a loss, and therefore you mourn that loss, you know. So the question is, why do we mourn? Mourning, like I said, is a very severe form of, um, I don't know if I use the word depression, but it's certainly a very, a very strong form of grief. So there has to be something which is much more profound than the mere fact that it was something that happened, you know, so many thousands of years ago. So that's a question. We know that the main idea of Tisha B'Av is Avelut, is to mourn, you see. So that is the question. Why do we mourn, which is, like I said, very severe form of uh, of commemorating. <clears throat> now you know we we, we it's, for, for us in many ways it's very hard to mourn because do we really suffer the loss of the Beit Hamikdash? <clears throat> when somebody mourns, he really feels the loss. You know, when somebody mourns from a relative, for instance, then he Rabbi, suffers the loss. Can you speak a little louder? I should speak louder. Yeah. Okay. How does it now, how does it sound now? Much better. Okay, good. So the question like I said is why do we mourn? Do we really feel the loss? That is the question. Because obviously in order to mourn you have to feel the loss. Well, what's what's prob uh, what's problematic today is that most people don't really feel the loss of the Beit HaMikdash because most people are not familiar with what what was Judaism like when there was a Beit HaMikdash? You see. So if they don't know what it was like when there was a Beit HaMikdash, so when it's gone or missing, well, what do we feel then? You see? So to most people, Tisha B'Av is basically a fast day. But obviously, it has to be more than that, you know, because we have many fast days. But on this particular fast day, there's an added dimension of mourning. It's a very important concept. 
distinction. No, there are many fast days, but Tisha B'Av is more than just a fast. It also includes the concept of Avelut, which is mourning, which means that it is of a different dimension than most fast days. So that's the question. Well, let's take a look. What was Tisha B'Av in those days? I should say, what was the Beit HaMikdash in those days? Right? So, w- w- the first idea, obviously, is Siluk uh, Shechino, is that the Divine Presence left. You know? And that itself is a tremendous thing, because, you know, today we look for God, we search for God. We don't feel Him, really. <clears throat> you see? But in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, you actually could feel the Shekhinah. Because there was a divine presence, you could actually feel the Shekhinah. So could you imagine if you are praying, you know, you want to daven Mincha, for instance, and you're davening by, near the uh, Beit HaMikdash, you would actually feel the presence of God. So there's no question that that is a tremendous loss that we have to actually feel God in a certain place would add tremendously to our ruchniyot, tremendously to our avodah. And you know, we you know, would certainly feel it. You know when? Because in the three regalim, the three holidays, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, we would feel the presence of God because everybody basically went to Jerusalem. You see, on those three days, because that's a mitzvah, to go to uh, Jerusalem, the pilgrimage, as they say. So, therefore, everybody would feel the divine presence. Well, we certainly lost that. So, it would be, make sense that we mourn the loss of the divine presence. You see. So, that's one idea, why we mourn because we have this tremendous loss of the divine presence but like I say it's hard for us to mourn because we don't know what the feeling of the divine presence was you see so it's much harder for us to mourn nevertheless we certainly lost the divine presence the Shekhinah and that certainly is part of the mourning you see a second idea we mourn also in many ways because we are diminished. You know, imagine when you want to do what's called the Avodah. You want to you know, do the mitzvot. So, when God was present in Eretz Israel, you would be able to, uh, to achieve, in many ways, a much greater level of ruchniyot, of spirituality. You see? So, there's no question that we have been diminished spiritually as a result of the fact that the Divine Presence is lost. There's a third idea also that the mourning, uh, you know, encompasses, and that's the concept of nevuah, prophecy. You see, what is prophecy really? Prophecy is the ability of an individual to transcend his consciousness, where his consciousness would transcend the physical body. And we, he would actually be able to look into the upper worlds, the upper spiritual dimensions. That's nivuah, you see. And when uh, the divine... Pre- now, as long as we had the divine presence among us, it meant that you could be a novi. 
you would have to go to some type of school where you would learn how to become a Navi because it would require a tremendous amount of Kabbalistic information and how to meditate and you would have to be an Oyved you'd have to be a Tzaddik and so on but if you did all that you could become a Navi a prophet and a Navi, a prophet it's not just a, a, a fortune teller you know, he could tell the future it was much greater than that because a Nevoah by being able to transcend the physical world you were actually able to learn and understand a tremendous amount of divine secrets that's really what Nevoah was about the, the concept of Nevoah most people make this mistake it's not just to tell the future but what Nevoah really enables you it was a certain state like I say where you were able to attach to God it was a state of tremendous dvikut attachment to God that was part of the prophetic experience the second thing is that you were able to see a different reality you see so and as a result of that you will be able to learn or understand a tremendous amount of ruchniyut or divine secrets you see so you had those three ideas in the vu'ah you had the attachment to God the ability to understand great secrets and also through the nevoah you were able to understand the future because God would be able to communicate that but what is important to know is that there are only 48 prophets that wrote the books of nevoah prophecy but there were over 600,000 Nevi'im which, which never wrote anything yet there were over 600,000 Nevi'im in Klai Yisrael at the time that the phenomenon of prophecy existed so what we're talking about really is the ability to achieve an unbelievable and almost an unparalleled um, experience of spirituality and that's gone because when the Shekhinah left the ability to access the Shekhinah and therefore do all these things also left so that's why Nevoah left uh, when the temple was destroyed basically that was the end of Nevoah could you imagine what a loss that was imagine being able to be connected to God to learn to see the upper dimensions even to speak to Malachim because once you were in those dimensions then you were able to speak to angels see them and so on so that is a incredible loss that we experienced with the destruction of the first temple you see so therefore what we could say obviously is that look I just mentioned three terrible things right one is the divine presence that left the second thing is that therefore when we went uh, to Jerusalem you know there was no divine presence and therefore our Ruchniyut our spirituality was enormously diminished tremendously diminished and the third thing is that the ability to achieve 
an unbelievable height in Ruchniyot was gone. You see, look, with Nevoah, could you imagine? You're not sure about where you, what you want to do with your life, where you want to go. So, what you would do is go to a Novi. And like I said, there were over 600,000 of Vim uh, prophets in the Jewish people. So could you imagine if there was a, a Novi that lived on your block? And you'd be able to go to him. Would it be Elio, Elisha, Yishayohu, Yimiyohu, Yecheski, and so on. And there were 600,000 other Nevi'im. Could you imagine being able to ask them, right, whatever you'd want to ask? And they would tell you, because they were Nevi'im. They were connected to God. They had that information. So could you imagine the guidance of these people? So that's a fourth thing that we lost. An unparalleled ability to be guided by a Novi. You see, and we lost that. So I've just enumerated four different things. Terrible that we lost them. You see, so this is the beginning of understanding of Tisha B'Av. You see, it's not that the building was destroyed, you know. Okay, we understand that. It's the loss of a beautiful structure. And the uh, Beit HaMikdash was a beautiful building. Especially the second Beit HaMikdash that was built by Hordes, Herod. They say that whoever did not see the Beit HaMikdash never saw a beautiful building in his life. And it was magnificent. In fact, it was the most beautiful uh, spiritual structure in the entire world. It was famous. People from all over came to see this unbelievable sight called the Beit HaMikdash. But it's not that. That's not even the main thing that we lost a building. Like I say, we lost the other four things. And that is far more important than the mere loss of a building. So we could ask ourselves, well, we, I, we can understand why we mourn. But I'll tell you something interesting. We mourn for a different reason, which is interesting, you know. And this is really what connects us to the Beit HaMikdash. It says in the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, it says the following, that Kol Dor, every generation, every generation in which the Beit HaMikdash is not built in that day, in, their, in that generation, it's as if it was destroyed again in that generation. <clears throat> That is a very profound concept. What does that mean? It means that God wants the Beit HaMikdash to exist. You see, what happens is the sins of the Jews obviously bring about a decree that it must be destroyed. But we can think that, okay, there was a decree at that time, right? And it was destroyed because the Jews sinned and they didn't deserve to have a Beit HaMikdash. But that happened once, twice, and so on. That's it. But based on this Yerushalmi, it's very important. Every time during the nine days, there is a major din Torah. There is a major court case to do what? To rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. Because God wants to have the Beit HaMikdash. And therefore, there is a major court case in heaven 
where they try to get the Beit HaMikdash built, hopefully that the Jews deserve it. So what happens? So the court case proceeds, and on Tisha B'Av, they examine all the deeds of the Jews. And they find that the Jews do not deserve to have it built. Well, what is interesting is not having it built is the equivalent equivalence of having it destroyed. See, that's what we don't understand. The Beit HaMikdash wasn't destroyed once or twice. It was destroyed 1,952 times. Because every year, there's always an attempt to build the Beit HaMikdash, you see. It's an ongoing attempt. So, if it's not built, it's not that it wasn't built. The problem was, is that it was destroyed. In other words, if the Beit HaMikdash was standing today, then it would be destroyed, because we do not deserve that it should stand. So, we actually destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. But since it wasn't, it's not standing today, so obviously the Gezerah against us having it cannot be, right, where, we, uh, where it's, not, it's not being built, but it, therefore, if it's not built, because it isn't now, then that Gezerah means it cannot be built, which is the equivalent of destruction. You see? So when you think about it, the Beis HaMikdash has been destroyed 1,952 times. Yeah, but what does that really mean? That means we are not commemorating something that happened 2,000 years ago, you see, and it was their fault. We are commemorating an event that is our fault. Because if the Beit HaMikdash is not built by Tisha B'Av this Thursday, it means that our sins, if it would have been standing today, would have made it destroyed. And since it's not standing, blocks it from being built, which is the equivalent of it being destroyed. You see? So that is why we mourn. We mourn not only because of the fact that there's an enormous loss of the things that I pointed out, but we mourn because we just destroyed the Beit HaMikdash all over again. Therefore, that is our connection. So, this Tisha B'Av, if the Beit HaMikdash is not built, and when it will be built, the third Beit HaMikdash will be built with fire, it will descend from heaven, you see. And what that really means is that the Beit HaMikdash has an equivalent in heaven. There's a structure in heaven which is the equivalent of a Beit HaMikdash where the divine presence rests. So in the Messianic era, that structure in heaven will come down and merge with the structure here and that is part of the messianic light, or that is part of the redemption, where the Beit HaMikdash actually merges with the physical Beit HaMikdash, you see, and that's really what happens, like it says, you know, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Why? Because the Ruchniyut of the upper worlds will join and merge with the physical world, and that also will be true of the Beit HaMikdash, you see. So, that's what happens. It's that the Beit HaMikdash and the Milo above will descend to the Beit HaMikdash, the Mato, here. So, this Tisha B'Av, 
if it is not built, it means that we are not worthy of it to be built, which is the equivalent of it being destroyed. And that is why we mourn. That is the real relevance of the Beit HaMikdash to us. You see? That's a very important idea to understand <coughs> really about what Tisha B'Av really is. You see? So, the first great tragedy, like I said, is those four ideas, which I mentioned, you see. And therefore, that is the loss, and the relevance is that we again caused its destruction, which means we again caused the inability of these four things to be restored. Now, this is a very important idea. So you really have to contemplate the loss. If you want to feel Tisha B'Av, you have to get into your mindset and feel these four ideas. You see, you know, the fact that we do not have Nevoah, the fact that we certainly cannot tell the future, the fact that we, our Ruchniut is tremendously diminished, and the fact that the Divine Presence is gone. You see. But I want to tell you something which is interesting. When the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, so we know that the essential idea, right, is that God left. He left. Means there's no more Shekhinah. It's called the Siluk, the abandonment of God, of the Beit HaMikdash. So the question is, what do we think? Would you say that God has left Totally? It's an interesting question. In other words, when God does leave because of the Chorban Bayit, the destruction of the Temple, does that mean that God really left? I'll tell you something very interesting, which most people don't realize. God did not leave, really. You see, what He did do, He's still in the Beit HaMikdash. But what He did do is He diminished his presence. That's what happens. In other words, the Beit HaMikdash, the Shekhinah, in the Beit HaMikdash, still is there. You see. So, the question then is, how come we don't feel it? And the answer is that, he didn't leave really. What he did is, he diminished his presence to the extent where we hardly feel him. But wait a minute. Hardly feel him? Does that mean that there is some type of residue or remaining presence left? And the answer is yes. Because what God did is He moved from the Kodesh HaKadoshim. He moved from the Ark, where the Ark used to be the, the Oren HaKodesh, used to be in the Kodesh Kadoshim. So that's where He was. That's where He was centered. And He moved from there, right? He moved from there to the Koisel. That's right. The Koisel really is the third Beit HaMikdash. It's not just a wall. It is the last remnant of the presence of God. You see. So, but the, but the Kotel is at the edge of the Beit HaMikdash. You know, it's the wall. It's not the wall of the Beit HaMikdash. It's really the wall of the entire area. It's called the Harabayas. That kotel that we go to is not the wall of the temple itself. It is the wall of the entire Harabai structure, you see. 
So what God did is he moved from the Kodesh HaKadoshim and he moved to the outer wall. But he's still there. But as a result of the move, his presence is severely diminished. That is why if you go to the Kotel and you really focus, you know, you can really experience his presence. It's very interesting. But that's really where he is now. So the divine presence really is now at the Kotel. But it's severely diminished. But if you can get into it, you can actually feel a divine presence. And many people say that they feel something. They feel something at the Kaisal, which they don't feel anywhere else in the world. And what they're really feeling is the divine presence, which is really very, very interesting, you see. In any case, so therefore we now understand what the loss is. But the truth is there's a greater loss, or the, I should say not greater, but there's another loss which most people don't realize. I will tell you what that is. When Adam Rishon sinned, or before the sin, what was the relationship between him and the Satan? Well, his job was not to obey the Satan, you see. That was his job, to ignore the advice of the Satan. Now, he sinned, which means he bought into the advice of the Satan, you see, and he sinned. Now, before that, the job of Adam was to bring down Kiddushah. There was a certain amount, and he had to bring down the rest, which I once spoke about. But after the sin, you see, then God said something very interesting to him. He said, until now, your job was to ignore the advice of the Satan, right, and bring down the Kiddushah, which will change the world into a higher spiritual world. But now that you sinned and you gave existence or life so to speak to the satan your job is not sufficient to do what to ignore his advice you must kill him you must destroy the satan you see but how so what god did is very interesting everything exists god creates it and maintains their existence how because there's a divine energy so to speak that comes down, a certain ore, that creates everything and allows it to maintain its existence. Everything has it. It's like a cable that comes down from heaven to an individual and it creates them and allows them to exist. If somebody were to walk over and cut that cable that connects you to God, you will instantly disappear because that's the only thing that keeps you existing. Now, the Satan also has a cable, because he also needs to exist through God. So, his cable connected to God enables him to exist and to maintain his existence. So, what God did is very interesting. When he told Adam that you must destroy the Satan, what he really meant was, I am now going to give you access to his cable, you see. That is, if you want, I will show you how you can remove the divine energy that comes down to the Satan's cable. Uh, you can remove the energy and he will die. But how? So it all depends on Adam. If Adam does the will of God, 
then the energy goes to him and it stays away from the Satan. In other words, what God did is he took the cable of the Satan and he connected it to the cable of Adam Rishon. So it's like an upside down Y. Comes down and then splits. One side goes into Adam, the other side goes into the Satan. We have taken the place of Adam Rishon because we are the only Metaken. So what happens as a result? So if the Jews do the mitzvot, then the energy that should have gone to the Satan is now diverted to us. And we flourish. We become tremendously successful in so many different ways. We become spiritual. And the Satan, since most of the energy is now going to the Jews, the Satan gets weak, gets weaker. And then if all the energy goes to all the Jews because they are doing all the mitzvot, then the Satan dies, literally. You see? But what happens if the Jews sin? So then the Satan, the energy that comes down that cable, now goes to the side of the Sitra Akhra, which is a Satan, and he flourishes. He becomes very powerful, you see. And he now succeeds in surviving and flourishing and, and really progressing. What happens to the Jews? They become weak. And many bad things happen to the Jews. But the Satan grows in strength. This is called Tigbiras or Tigboret Hurrah. The growth of evil. You see. Which is interesting. That means the Satan can grow in power if the Jews sin. Because the Satan is unique. He nourishes or eats, feeds off the Kiddusha of the Jew that should have gone to the Jew if he had done his mitzvot. Instead, it goes to the Satan. So you have what's called a seesaw, or it's called a reciprocal relationship. If the Jew is up because he does the mitzvot, then the Satan diminishes. If the Jew is up on the seesaw, then the other side of the seesaw is down. And if all the Jews do all the mitzvot, the Satan dies. Or vice versa. If the Jews sin, then all the, the unique, the nourishment that would have gone to the Jew goes to the Satan. And he now goes up and the Jew goes down. So that's a seesaw. It's called the reciprocal relationship. You see? In other words, when one is up, the other is down. They're never equal. And when the other side is up, the other one is down. You see? So we now understand that we have a very interesting relationship with the Satan. That since we have control over his cable, in fact, we're the only one that has control. The Satan has to wait for the Jews' action. You see, he, he does not have control which way the or the divine energy goes. The Jews determine that. So if they sin, it goes to him, the Satan. They become weak. If, however, they do mitzvot, then the, the, the ore that comes down goes to the Jew and not the Satan, you see? So it is the Jew that controls, the Jews that control the energy that comes down. You see the way it works. It's very important. So therefore, we have this relationship with the Satan, you see? Now, where do you see this? We see it especially by Esau. In the Torah it says that Rivka, they were battling inside of her. So she went to uh, Shem Be'evel 
And they told her, right, that uh, that uh, there are two great nations within you, right, and uh, they will be separate from you, and one will be greater than the other. So Rashi says that if the Jews are great, then then Esav, who is obviously inside with Yaakov, he will diminish. And if the Jews sin, then Esav will grow great. Why? Because the Malach of Esav is a Satan. So since the Jews have this relationship with, with the Satan, which I just mentioned, then obviously Esav, the Malach of Esav is a Satan. So therefore Esav also has that relationship with the Jews, with Yaakov. So if the Jews do mitzvot, then Esav is down. And if the Jews do what? If the Jews do uh, sins, then Esav is up. You see? So that's exactly what I'm talking about. It is a reciprocal relationship with Esav, because the Satan is the angel of Esav. And therefore, since we have the relationship to the Satan, therefore we have the exact same relationship to Esav. You see? So this is a very important idea. Now, what does all this have to do with Tisha B'Av? Because what we see something is a very important relationship, that the strength of evil, or the Satan, depends on the actions of the Jews. If the Jews sin, then the Satan wins. He grows in might. In fact, the, the Satan is the only angel that can grow or diminish. Every angel that was created cannot do that. It must remain in the state that it was created. Only the Satan can grow or diminish, all depending on the actions of the Jews. Because the, the job that God wants the Jew to do is to destroy the Satan, and that's how we could do it, by denying him his food, which is the divine energy, he will ultimately die. And that's exactly what happens in the end. That's why the Satan dies. Not because God kills him. We killed him. You see, most people think it's God. No. It's we who killed him. Why? Because we took away all the energy of the Satan. We took it away from him. Either because we did mitzvot. So that brings it down to us. Doesn't even give it to him. Or we did an avera and then we do tshuva. So if we do averot, he grows. But when we do tshuva, he's got to give it back to the Jews. Or, third way, is Yisurin. If the Jews suffer, then he also has to give back all that divine energy, you see. And as a result of that, he is now bankrupt and he dies. So in the end, that is why the Satan dies. Because the Jewish people have done what? They have taken out the energy. And what is interesting also is you see that we go through four different nations, you see. When the Jews went in Egypt, they destroyed Egypt. Why? How? Because what they did is they took out the energy of Egypt because of the suffering. So therefore the Satan was devoid of energy. And if the energy of the Satan is absent, so is the energy of Egypt, which is his Bechor. That's his nation. Those are his soldiers. And that is why Egypt died. It's not just because God killed the Egyptian. Of course he did. But he did it in response to our actions. We destroyed Egypt by denying them 
the divine energy that the Satan is unique, nourishes. And as a result of that, there was no energy left, so Egypt died. You see? I mentioned that when I talk about the Pesach Shir. That was the matter. The Vashem told them, take the stick and throw it to the ground. It became a snake. Why? Because the snake is unique from the matter, the staff of God. And then when, uh, when the Rabbi Hashem told Moshe, pick up the staff, and it became, a, pick up the snake, it became a staff, because what happened is the Jews, God was telling Moshe what the Jews had accomplished in Egypt, is that what they had accomplished is that they had taken out all the energy from the Satan. They took it back to the side of holiness. And therefore the snake became a stick. It became the staff of God, you see? Therefore, God destroyed Egypt. But it's not only that. You'll notice the Jews go into a country. They, after Egypt, they went into Babylon, Babel, right? They were there for whatever, let's say 70 years. And then they left Babel, right? They left that exile. So, what happened to Babel? It was destroyed. It was destroyed by Persia. The question is, what enabled Babel to be destroyed? And the answer is because the Jews went into exile. They did either the mitzvot or the tshuva, or they suffered. And therefore they took away the energy of Babel, right? And as a result of that, Babel was destroyed. You see, the same thing happened with Persia. You know, the Jews did what they did. They did tshuva by Mordechai and Esther, right? They took out all the divine energy from the Satan, which then took it out of Persia, and Persia collapsed. Greece took it over, you see. And they did the same thing to Greece. By Hanukkah, the Jews restored the Beit HaMikdash, you know, rededicated it, and therefore they took out the energy from Greece, which means that the Satan was now, uh, the, the energy of the Satan was gone, and therefore Greece collapsed until Rome. Now Rome has the energy and we are on the job of taking it out. And that's really what's going on. This is the secret of the exile. The ex secret of the exile is to, is to wander, to be exiled in Rome, which is, of course, Christianity, which is also, of course, uh, uh, Western civilization. And what we do is we take out the energy from the nation by doing the mitzvot, and not only that, by doing also, right, tshuva, and also suffering, that's the galut, we take out the energy of these nations because we take out the energy from the satan himself, you see. And therefore, ultimately speaking, all the energy will be taken out from the satan, then Edom will collapse. That is what's going to happen, which means the Western civilization will collapse, the evil will collapse, you see, uh, from Western civilization, you see, and Christianity will collapse, and that is what the Messianic era is all about. <clears throat> Therefore, when, when the uh, Asaph has the energy, because we are in it trying to take it back, but our sinning gives him more and more energy, then he is able to do many things, you see, the Hatzlocho, the Hatzlacha, 
the success of the Goyim is really our energy. There's a very famous pasuk that we see in Tachnun. Very important pasuk. It says the following. Admosai uschobashvi. Admosai, admotai uschobashvi. How long will your strength be in captivity? Right? Visif autcho. And your beauty be at in the hands of the enemy. Those two things refer to the Tferes and the Oiz. The, the divine energy that we have means that we have Tferes, beauty, which is Chochmah, wisdom, knowledge. And Oiz is might, strength. That's really what we have when we have the divine energy. But when we lose it, then the Goyim have Tferes and Oiz. They have beauty, which is chokhmah, and they have might, which is success, and so on. So that's what the, the, in the Tachnun Tefillah uh, says. How long will your Admosai Uzchubashri, how long will your might, which is success, be in captivity, you see? And how long will your wisdom, you see, be in the hands of the enemy? which of course they wish to use against it. This pasuk refers to what I've been telling you, that we have that unique relationship with Satan. And in the end of time, the Mashiach will come when, when all the energy of the Satan will be restored to the Jewish people. And he will therefore be bankrupt, he will die. Because obviously without that divine energy, you don't survive, you see. So he will die, and therefore the Mashiach ben Yosef can come. In other, in other words, it's not that an individual comes and does this. No. There has to be a preparation. What is the preparation? Where the energy is removed from the Satan. And like I've said, 98% of the energy is now gone from the Satan. And that is why the nations of the world don't really have the ability anymore to exile the Jews. Because the Jews, basically, most of them have come back to Eretz Israel. And wherever they are in the nations, there's no real persecution, you see. So this is really what the whole plan is. The Jews have to take back all the divine energy from the Satan and as a result of that, the nations themselves collapse, you see. And as a result of that, all of it collapses. And ultimately, the Mashiach comes and the Satan dies. This is really what goes on underneath that most people don't realize. It is a battle in heaven, you see. It's not here. It is a battle, a spiritual battle that exists between the Satan and also the Jewish people. And that's why Amalek, by Amalek it says, you see, it, it says, you know, Emcha, Mochoi Emcha, I will surely blot out the name of Amalek. Why does it say twice? Because God says, Mochoi, you will blot out Amalek, and therefore Emcha, I can blot him out. Because in order for me to blot out Amalek, you need to do the right things. And therefore you bankrupt the Satan. And therefore Amalek has no more Koyach at all. He doesn't have the Kiddushah that used to belong to you. 
And then, Emche, I will blot him out. You see? The same concept again. That our battle really is with the spiritual forces of the Satan. And when he goes, everybody goes. All the nations that represent the Satan, they all die. You see? And in many ways, that's what's happening with Ishmael. Because Ishmael also has that. And that's why the Arab nations are collapsing that we see all over, you see. Because the Jews have succeeded in many ways of taking out the tremendous amount of divine energy. Therefore, this is also Tisha B'Av, you see. Because we mourn the fact that the Satan has our energy. And because he has our energy, he has what should have been ours. He has Teferis and Oiz. He has might, success, and Teferis, which means tremendous Chochmah, wisdom. You see, it's interesting. When you walk down, let's say, Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, although now it's not true, the whole place is a Chorban, you know, what are you looking at? You're looking at the tremendous Hatzlacha, success of the Goyim. But what is that success? That success is ours. That is our ore that they take because of our sins. So because they take our ore, divine energy, they have unusual success in Teferis and Oiz. You see? So that's what you're looking at. You know, it's funny. I, I once... Um, in New Jersey, there's a college called... Actually, you should know about it because it's near Deal. It's called Monmouth College. Right? It's near you guys. That's where it is, you know? And when you think about it, Monmouth College... What is it? It's a nobody college. Or Monmouth University. It's nothing. It doesn't compare to the other great universities. But when you look at what they have, they have a magnificent campus. Even the lowliest of their educational institutions look magnificent. Then when you look at a yeshiva or a Beit Knesset, it doesn't compare to the, mag- to, the, to the magnificence and the success of these institutes. Why? And the answer is that is the awe that we gave to the Goyim, that they are able to have these incredible places of knowledge and their tremendous success in business and so on, and we see that in Manhattan, at least what used to be Manhattan, you know. And therefore, that's what we mourn also. So Tishabov has this fifth element where we mourn the awe that we gave to Satan and that he gives to the Umar Sa'ulam, to the nations of the world, and that they use it against us and in many ways try to drive us away. You see? So that is the fifth reason why we mourn. And that is a tremendous loss that we have. Used to be the Beit HaMikdash was the most magnificent building in the world 2,000 years ago. And now it's completely devoid. It's destroyed, you see. And that is what we've done. So I've, so I've given you the fundamental relationship that we have with the Satan. The fundamental relationship that we have with the Goyim, you see. And why we are still in Golis. Because we have to maintain our spirituality to bankrupt the Satan, which bankrupts the world nations, 
and then the Mashiach comes after everything has been bankrupted, you see, and we take over. That's what Tisha B'Av really is all about, and that is why we mourn. Look at what we mourn, look how many reasons, what the real mourning of Tisha B'Av is. Any questions? Yes. So how, what is the world going to look like when the Satan's bankrupt? Well, the, the Satan dies in stages. You see that in Egypt, you know. But when the Satan dies, that's it. There's no more death. There's no disease. There's no sickness, nothing. Not only that, nothing decomposes. Yes, it has to come. What was that? You said that Mashiach and Yosef has to come once uh, we get to the full 100% of the Satan dying. Uh, yes, when, when, it, when he's about to die, that's when he comes and, and, then, and then he gets destroyed, you see. Actually, he gets destroyed by the Mashiach ben David. But the final battle to take away the dominion of the Satan is done by Mashiach ben Yosef. You see, that's who does it. But the one who kills the guy, ultimately, Satan, is Mashiach ben David. So, so the world is going to, like, in order for it to be destructed, a destruction, like, um, yeah. bankrupt from, from the Satan, there's going to be, you know, Edom is going to be uh, destroyed. Yes. And all that. So, um, where does, like, where does Yosef come in in that process? Well, he comes in when the tikkun is almost complete. That's when he comes in. <coughs> that should be now. I can't hear you, what? That should be now. Yes. Yes, we are right up against that time. You see. Do you hear anything about this past Shabbat? from any rabbis or anything like is there anything divine anyone feel anything you mean I, I, I haven't heard anything no I haven't heard any, anything what anybody what anybody says but one so, thing is certain I mean you're seeing what America is happening to America America's at the brink if Biden gets in right then, right. then the Satan will have been able to resurge. And the Rasha Be'esov will continue for a short while, you see. And uh, if Trump goes back, then that's a very good sign that the Tevsha Be'esov now dominates. And uh, I believe also in Eretz Israel, something radical will happen. And I believe we are very close to you know, ushering the whole Messianic era. By the way, Rabbi, did you see in Israel they were all protesting in front of Netanyahu's house to... to uh, yes, yeah, that's very interesting. What you were saying to get rid of this government, now the people are trying to get rid of him. Exactly, isn't that interesting? Yeah, because he represents the era of Rav. And the era of Rav is the last impediment to the Gula. As long as Netanyahu is in power, the Jews will not do tshuva. He blocks it. So what has to happen is that he has to leave. So we are, we are, we are watching the whole Israel is slowly turning against him. 
you know. And what's interesting, I also heard, I also heard, uh, this was reported in Arut Sheva, that the Likud, of which Netanyahu is the Prime Minister of, the Likud, there's a faction in the Likud that wants to get rid of Netanyahu because they hold he's destroying the Likud. That's why. Because more and more people are protesting against him so they are losing seats. You see. So they want to get rid of him. Which is amazing. And I also heard that they want to replace him with Gideon Saar. Which is interesting. Because that's what I've been saying. So there's something happening now in Israel that in some way, right now we don't see how far it's going to go, but it, it can easily destroy the government, you see. And this faction in the Likud said that if they can't get rid of Netanyahu, they're going to split the party, which will mean the fall of the government to a fourth election. So there's something... There's something volcanic erupting in Israel, which is interesting. And that's at the same time that it is happening in America with Biden and Trump. You know, and then Netanyahu is trying desperately to hang on, you know. We're witnessing, it's interesting, we're witnessing the desperate attempt of the Satan not only not, not to leave go, but to put his guys, maintain their power, you see. We're watching it on both ends. On the end of Israel, right, on that side, and on the side of Edom, America, which is a Toysha base of. So it's really fascinating when you think about it, you know. Because we all feel there's something going on here. And it's like I say, it's happening simultaneous on both sides of the ocean. You see? So don't be surprised. That is a very good sign that we are right up against the end. You see? Rabbi, so how does Shabbat uh, eventually turn into a celebration? Because the Mashiach, because the Tisha B'Av is a very important concept. Because when Jews mourn Tisha B'Av, that means they want God back. So that merit that they want God back. Because why are you mourning if you don't want Him back? So obviously the fact that they mourn and they have grief is a tremendous mitzvah, schut, that the Jews want God back. They want Him to return. So therefore, that merit is what allows the Mashiach ben David to be born. That's what Chazal say, that he's born on Tisha B'Av. You see? And the reason for that is because the merit that the Jews have, that they want God back. You see? And as a result of that, then God will come back. We are watching the tremendous signs that we are near the end. You know? When you... Born on Tisha B'Av. Uh, what was that? When you, when you say he's born on Tisha B'Av, it's his birthday, but is it also when the klipa of him is uh, being cut? Yes. Yeah. Because so really he, he can't be born unless the, he, the, the Satan is, is 
is, is I should say, I should use the word, he's a goises. A goises is somebody who's more dead than alive. You see. Now, born does not necessarily mean that he is literally born. You know? That's right, physically, exactly. Born means that uh, he's released from his klipa, and that's considered a birth. He is now uh, 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 he, he is now emerged, so to speak, from the klipa, because that's where he is. So that emergence is called a birth, and Tishbav is the schut of the fact that he emerges from the klipa. You see, so born doesn't necessarily mean physically, but it certainly means that the redemption begins on that day. So that's what may happen. You see. Which is interesting. That, that the redemption could start on Tisha B'Av. Exactly. Thursday, yeah. What do we wear? You think, you think it, could, it could happen this year? Or you think it, it we're, we're a year? I think this year is as good as any because we are really down to the wire. Amen. You know, it's got to happen, you know. Amen. And when the gematria we know of Tisha B'Av is 780. So maybe so that gematria... Feel, what? Wait, wait. The of Tisha is yeah, so we know that. Big. We know that. Seven hundred and eighty, yeah, which which is this year. Right. How do we feel it when when we're fasting? Like, how do we know? You understand what I mean? How do we know if he is released? Yeah. How do we get? How do we tap into that? Like, let's say if this Peshabat, uh Mashiach Ben Yosef, his klipa was was you know cut off. How do we how do we tap into know, the knowing or the feeling of the release of these Meshichim? Well, you have to have a tremendous schut to tap into that. <clears throat> I mean, everybody eventually will know, but who's going to know when he initially is released? You have to have a tremendous schut. You also have to be on a high spiritual level. You know? Right. But I'm sure that if it happens this Tisha B'Av, I'm sure that there are many tzaddikim and that they will say, you know? Um, right. Yeah. That they will say this. They'll feel it and they'll, and they'll say that this, uh, some, somebody's going to come out and say, okay, I experienced it and it's going to happen. Men. Right? I have I have some questions from like from from the week that came up that I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So, um the first question was um during Matan Torah when we when we got res- resurrected twice from hearing Hashem say the first two debra to remove the zohama, right? Yeah. Why didn't it remove in the first time we were resurrected? Why did it need to happen twice? And also, is that going to happen to us? Are we going to get resurrected twice? Uh, no, we get resurrected once. Once. Why did they have it twice? Did they have it twice? Yeah, when Hashem said the first two they brought, the first one they then died. Then they died. Second, they died resurrected. Right? Yeah, they died, right? But who, where do you see that they died twice? That they were resurrected twice? Because he gave two mitzvot. The they, they passed out, Hashem had to revive them. He said to get rid of the Zohama. He said, 
uh, the second one, uh, again, the Neshamot left them. That's why they told Moshe, please you tell us, we don't know if we'll be resurrected the third time. <clears throat> well, they were certain resurrected once. And that's all you need to be resurrected once to get rid of the Zayamah. In fact, that's why they died. Because at that point in time, Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to be the Mashiach ben Yosef, right? And what God wanted is that, they, that God should appear to each Jew, not through Moshe Rabbeinu. So therefore, since they were so close to the end, right, uh, he needed them to be resurrected, so therefore he appeared to them knowing that they would die. And therefore he could take with his Zayama, you see. And the problem was, of course, is that later on, they did the Chet Ego, you see. So it, it, what's going to happen with us is the same thing. Everybody's going to die, right, which I mentioned, and the Zoyamo will then leave, you see. But this, the, 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 uh, the Zoyamo leaving is only one step because the Satan still exists, you see. You've got to get rid of the Satan, and that's his death. That is the, the end of the whole journey is the death of the Satan. Because then there's no possibility. You know, it's like a mikveh. You can go to the mikveh, and you come out, you're tall, but you can always become tummy over again, right? Because the, the Zoyama still exists, you see? So the end of the, the whole journey, so to speak, is that the Satan himself dies. And that, in the end, removes the entire concept of Zoyama. You see. Okay. You know, Rabbi, when you were talking about the Kotel being holy, it's very weird because when I go to Israel, even my children, out of nowhere, we're just walking and then tears are streaming down our face. It, it must be that our neshama is feeling the Shekhinah. Exactly. Yes. Yes, so then you obviously must have some type of elevated neshama. Because you and what? It also happens to me in Marat Machpelah out of nowhere. Just tears stream down as I'm walking into the building. I don't know why. Because your nishama is feeling the nishama of the avot and the imahot. That's why you're feeling the presence. And by the way, the Maorat Machpelah is the also, which is an interesting idea. It is the gateway to Gan Eden. Correct. So you may be feeling something at the entrance to Gan Eden, and there's a longing of the neshama to go to Gan Eden. Beautiful. It, so how do my it, kids get it also? Like the first time I took them with me that they were able to understand, all of a sudden we're walking, and then all of a sudden you see they're just flying from nowhere. I'm like, what's going on? They go, we don't know. Same idea, yes. They are also feeling a tremendous kiddusha, tremendous holiness that is emanating either from the from the Kozel or it's emanating from the Morazamachpela. Both of which are are incredibly holy. Yeah. Rabbi yeah. recharged. Rabbi, don't you think the the Shekhinah got much stronger like from from thirty, forty years ago? I feel a total difference like when I go 
from 30 years ago to Israel and now when you go, it's so much stronger. Like you, the minute I entered Yerushalayim, the energy is so strong, like you feel it. Yeah, and that's because we're getting closer to the end. Because as the, as the uh, Satan gets weak, then the Shekhinah gets stronger. Because it's the same idea as we. We are just like we have a seesaw with the Satan. The Shekhinah also has the same seesaw. You know? Because uh, <clears throat> God is really the exile with us. So as, as we get closer and closer to the end, then the Shekhinah obviously gets stronger. Because all the Kiddusha is going into the side of Kiddusha. That is why. So the more of, a, of us that, that mourns the Beit HaMikdash the proper way, is the, the more likely for Mashiach to come? Like, the more that we mourn, it, mourn on Tisha B'Av the right way. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So maybe and that, we that, take and we should send it out community. What was that? Saying maybe we'll we'll take our notes and send it out to the community. Yes, sure, why not? Yeah, you could take this year and send it out. Yeah, like more people learn. Sure, um, exactly. Rabbi, the other thing I wanted to ask, maybe um, next week you could touch up on it. I'm, I'm very curious about the gates of heaven. I know there's 12 gates. The 12th one is Sa'ad Hamim Gedolim. Like, I would love to learn how do we access it, what's the difference between the gates, how the tefillah filter through the gates. Like, it's just very, um, that concept is very interesting to me. Um, okay, I have to see. I mean, it's the tefillah. What? Because the gates have something to do with the tefillah. Oh, yeah, because each world... Remember, you have five worlds, and each world has ten sefirot, and so on. So the gate is what separates the different worlds, you see. And even this world has seven chambers, seven levels. The Oilamasiya has seven levels. They're called the seven heavens, you know. And the gates uh, are, they are the uh, boundaries of each uh, heaven. See. So our tefillah has to go through each gate? Yes, it goes up, exactly. Yeah, it goes up, all the way up to the Kisiyah Kovet. Wow. Okay, great. Okay, everybody should have an easy fast. And let's hope that uh, this Tisha B'Av is it. What? Rabbi, I have a quick question. That he came, call us. I can't hear you, what? If you find that Mashiach comes on Thursday, let us know. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will let you know. But, but, Rabbi, remember you were talking last, last week or two weeks ago about uh, the seven and the other three are not, we, we can't access now? It's not accessible now, so it's, we only count seven times seven yes. is 49? That's right. Okay, and then it's really 10 times 10, which is 100, correct? Yeah, that's, that's the totality. So does that also, does that 10 of the totality also connect to us that it has brought 
Asara Makot, Asara, like the ten circles. Yeah. Yes, I mentioned that, sure. So these ten, those ten also are the same ten, they correspond to all the other ten. Yes. That's right. Okay. Can we access the other, can we only access those seven or the other, all the others are, all of them are accessible to us now? Well, right now we can only access the seven and then the 50th gate of Chochmah or is, uh, is the gate 50, which is the beginning of the entry into Bina. So that's called the Nunshari Bina, you see. But right now we can only access 49. The Nun, which is the 50th, we can only access... Uh, when the uh, oh, that's the beginning of the Om Shiach. That's, that's the beginning of the Chochmah so... of all of the upper three. Interesting. Okay, got it. I am okay. Thank you. Sure.